0: Good morning. Good to see you all here in this beautiful Sunday morning. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. Nehemiah 5 verse 19. Samson DVD tonight at 6 p.m. Finger foods as usual. Prayer meeting Wednesday at seven. Andrea's number financial note there. Acts and facts are here for uh, July. That's on the foyer table. Uh, Still take note for the uh, care package collection uh, for the soldiers in Afghanistan. And there is a list of items posted on the HELPS board. If you're the last person to leave the church, make sure that the lights are turned off and the doors are locked. The Free Grace broadcaster is also here. You on the foyer table. It seems like there's something else I should be mentioning and I've forgotten. Did somebody say something to me this morning and I forgot? No? Okay. <laughs> uh,
1: probably not going to have Aidenby
0: Church. What's that now?
1: Probably not going to oh, have Church. Okay.
0: So do we want to shoot that out on the right now? Let's, let's shoot that out if we're not going to have it tonight. Um,
1: and our air conditioner, I don't know, folks, we, we may need a new, new one. one
0: we've been Adam's having been trouble over, tinkering
1: with it but you know it is 25 years
0: old yeah um, i guess i guess i'm having a coffee issue or something but um i was going to mention again the um, robin henry's family and they're you know dealing with the funeral rolls the the services and of course we can see we're we're low in numbers we have uh, many that are ill, George, uh, convalescing at home, and Sheila's caring for him, so uh, remember those. So, Let's stand together and open our service in prayer. Ren, would you mind? Yeah, thanks. Dear Father, we just coming for you today. Pray for all of our church family who are home today due to illness or circumstances that have come up. We just pray for all the various needs that people have. Lord, you know what they all are? We only know some of them. Uh, we pray for George um, that he's able to rest comfortably, recover <clears throat> from the surgery. Um, we pray for the others. We pray for all of the families that we just met with at camp. We pray for all of the kids. Yes. Father, we just. You are with us today as we hear the message Please let them be your words Please help us to focus on you, Lord Father, we just pray that you lead with us today Stay with us throughout the week And uh, we just pray for your blessings in Jesus' holy name Amen Excuse me Turn to number 34 in the hymnal 3-4
2: in the brown hymnal Sing loud today. in the purple okay <clears throat> 55 let me see is that why this is in the in the spirit of camp <clears throat> I would say. And we'll sing it twice.
1: Hmm? Oh,
0: She's not
2: playing, that's what she said. Okay. okay.
0: So
2: we're going to sing it twice through.
0: <clears throat> This morning is Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, we'll be reading 14 through 19, that's 757 in the Pew Bible. We all can stand. Yep. Nehemiah 5, 14 through 19. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until this 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors... Those preceding me placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, A hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because because the demands were heavy on these people." Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I have done for these people. That's yes, that. The Lord would bless the reading of His Word.
2: Take your red hymnals this time, and turn to number five hundred and forty-six. Five forty-six in
0: the Trinity.
1: Our scripture text is Nehemiah 5. Last Lord's Day we heard a cry of injustice which came before Nehemiah by some of his subjects. There was a threefold complaint. Number one, the poor families whose households were large were in danger of starving because they had no resources to buy grain. Why did they have no resources? The land was in a state of famine, so the farms weren't producing. Secondly, those who did own farmland were mortgaging their farms and their homes in order to buy grain. Thirdly, the king's tax was so burdensome that in addition to mortgaging their farms, some borrowed money at exorbitant interest, and some parents had been forced to sell their children as indentured servants to guarantee their survival. And then later, when they wanted to redeem their kids, they didn't have any money to do it. So, I mean, think, just think about that. And in all three complaints, this is the sad thing, in all three complaints, it was the wealthy Israelite families themselves who were buying up the mortgages, charging the high interest rates, selling the children they acquired to the Gentiles. Wow. Nehemiah's response, he became very angry, and he thought about his answer before he spoke. When he did speak, he accused the nobles and the officials of their sin of usury. Usury is um, charging people high interest on their loans, exorbitant interest, which, by the way, is forbidden in the law of Moses. He accused them of selling their brethren as slaves to the Gentiles. Well, you know, if that was going to happen, are the Gentiles going to give them back? No, (laughs) they're going to keep a good thing. He further accused them of sin and dishonoring God's name. And number five, he commanded them to stop what they were doing and to pay back all they had taken. And they did. They obeyed. Marvelous. Some lessons that we learn, it's possible for godly people to do bad things and to need to recover to the path of righteousness. We can get caught up by the sin of greed. Secondly, when God's people do sin, they should be accused of their transgression, called to repentance, held to their promises to reform. We learned a spiritual lesson that when sinners do not have the price of redemption for those sold in slavery to sin, God pays the price and sets the enslaved free. Amen. Well, today we come to the epilogue of last week's study when Nehemiah had finished bringing the needed corrections to the injustices which were going on in Jerusalem. But he did one more thing as a kind of um, capstone on the whole outcome. He told the people of his own personal practice as their governor not to boast, but to embolden them to follow his example, to do the same. it's like It was like saying to them, here's what I've been doing, and I encourage you uh, to do likewise. And that is the basis of our study today as we look at Nehemiah's integrity. Our Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for Nehemiah's life and example. In many ways, he represents the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of... Uh, caring and concern and of sacrifice which we also need to embolden be emboldened in our lives as well we ask your blessing upon your word today and we see there are a lot of people out today sick weather related as well i'm sure i pray lord that your blessing will be upon them bring healing and restoration and we'll praise you for what you teach us today from this wonderful old testament book of nehemiah thank you lord for preserving it for us and for these godly saints of the old testament that speak well into our day and age we bless thee in jesus name amen we're looking today in the book of nehemiah at the subject of nehemiah's integrity you see, this whole business of one Israelite taking advantage of another Israelite in his time of dire need brings up the question, how could this happen in a society which purported to be the people of God? I mean, George, if George were here, he say, weren't they connecting the dots? Didn't they see cause and effect? Didn't they see responsibility? Well... If they did, it didn't become obvious in terms of practicality. Basically basic to this question is the assumption that God's people are going to act godly in these matters and not like the people of the world. I mean, that's our assumption. Are we not a distinct breed of people? Isn't there supposed to be things which are to make us differ radically from our counterparts in the world. I mean, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, if we claim to be lovers of God, shouldn't the practice of Jesus towards the poor and the lowly and the watch care and the generosity of our loving God over his creation, shouldn't that spill over into our own lives? And if not, what makes us think that we really are any different than the people of the world for having known God as Savior and Lord. The difference of which I speak has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with nationality or economic status or environment or upbringing. But the difference is one of attitude. It's one of motivation and response to the trials and problems of life which face all humanity in a cursed and sinful world. John addresses this issue in very practical terms when he writes in his first letter. Let me read it for you. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called... The children of God, and that is what we are. Wow. Dear children, he goes on, Do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And then he gives an example. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 1 John 3, verse 1 and following. That's a good question. We claim to be sons of God, children of God, so shouldn't we then be acting like God's people? Fully logical, fully biblical, to suggest that one's offspring, to be truly related to you, involves more than biology. I remember in the rebellion of the 60s when young people forsook the morality of their parents and began to abuse their bodies with drugs and fornication and other kinds of uh, philosophies, for example, Marxist philosophy, which in many universities resulted in physical violence, destruction of school property. I remember it all. It was not uncommon, not uncommon for parents. To look upon their children in a totally detached way and they would say something like, you are no son of mine or you are no daughter of mine. Now what were they saying? Well, they did not mean, of course, that these young people were not their biological sons and daughters. Of course, they had fathered them and the mothers had given birth to them. That Those things they didn't deny. What these parents were saying is that their children had so rebelled against the moral philosophy of their upbringing, had so reversed themselves in terms of righteousness, orderly conduct, lawful behavior, that the parents could no longer see in them the children that they had raised and taught right from wrong. For many parents, it was as though their children were now strangers to them. I heard it said, they would say, I don't know you. Or they would say, I don't understand you. And uh, let me tell you, this ran deeper than the uh, moral differences which exist in a generational gap. This departure from the family norms was radical, it was revolutionary, it was deep running and entirely destructive to the family integrity. Whole families disintegrated in the 60s because the children denounced the moral philosophy of their parents. They became anarchists, free love devotees, drug addicts. Yeah, the biological ties remain, but the philosophical and spiritual and moral ties, those were severed. And in many ways, I think in many ways, we're still experiencing the sad results of that cultural revolution. But that's where it all started. Now, Jesus himself dealt with this difference between biology, and spiritual philosophy one day when he was talking to the Jews who had just claimed to be Abraham's descendants. That's the word they used. We are descendants. And Jesus said to them, I know you are, I know you are Abraham's descendants. The word descendants here in the Greek is sperma, from which we get the word sperm. So he was saying to them, I know you are Abraham's sperm. I know you are his seed. He goes on. Yet, you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word, that is his teaching, in your heart. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. And at that point, they interjected. The Jews interjected. Well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus took issue with that. Here's what he said. If you were Abraham's children, it uses a different word. Not sperma, not seed, but techno, the Greek word for child, a child that's truly attached in spirit as well as in body because of possessing the same nature as the parent, sometimes used in the sense of disciple. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father, writes John. First John 2, verse 13. But Jesus says to these Jews, if you were Abraham's tekna, if you were his children, then you would do the things that Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. John 8, verse 37 and following. And at that point, they interjected, Again, that uh, Abraham was their father, and Jesus countered, saying that your father is the devil who was a murderer from the beginning. And you get the point. (laughs) They were out to murder Christ, and so they were showing themselves to be not children of Abraham, but children of the devil. So the Lord is saying, yes, I know you are descendants of Abraham. You have a biological link to the spiritual head of the Jewish nation. But you're not related to Abraham in spirit, in nature, in philosophy, because you are killers on the make. That's who you are. Abraham believed in God. Abraham looked to the coming Messiah promised to him. Whereas these Jews refused to listen to God and they were plotting the death of the Messiah that had come. And their refusal to listen to the teaching of Jesus, which was the truth, their continued plot to kill him, demonstrated that though they were biologically linked to Abraham, they were philosophically and spiritually linked to Abraham. To their true father, the devil, who never held to the truth and was a murderer at heart, Jesus says, John 8, verse 44. The point being this. To claim sonship to God, one must do the works of God. To claim discipleship to Jesus, one must obey the teachings of Jesus. And anything less is bogus It puts a lie to the children of God standing that people claim. Now, you may take the title to you, but not have the reality. And when that occurs, the title, Child of God, or Disciple of Jesus, is only a misnomer. Not only that, but a travesty of the truth. People like the titles, don't they? but they like the titles without possessing the substance. It's like an unearned honorary doctorate which universities sometimes bestow on popular people because of their philanthropic endeavors or their notoriety in a particular humanitarian endeavor. Everyone knows that this person didn't earn the doctorate if it's honorary. (laughs) That means that they don't have the knowledge and the expertise associated with such studies, but he or she has the title only. And in this sense, the title is rather hollow and meaningless. Anyone who runs around with an honorary doctorate compelling people to address him, a Dr. so-and-so, plays the fool rather than the wise person. And we play the fool as well if we claim the title child of God without having the faith and the repentance and the godly behavior to substantiate. If our nature and the philosophy that we live by is not godly in attitude and behavior, then we're no more the children of God than the Jews of Jesus' day were the children of Abraham. We may have a biological link, in that our parents or maybe our grandparents before them were Christian people, but that's kind of an honorary inheritance and title and has no redeeming effect on us. I've had to deal with people that, you know, they they claim a godly grandparents or godly mom and dad. But they're living like the they're living like the devil. You know, they think they're Christians because they got Christians in their family. You say, what all this had to do with Nehemiah? Well, just this. The Jews of Jerusalem had treated their federal uh, israelites in ways that enemies might have treated them. They were oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the famine which caused many to have to mortgage their farms, charging exorbitant interest on loans, even taking their children from them and selling them as indentured servants to of all people the Gentiles, the Gentiles, non-Jews. Contrast this to Nehemiah's practice, verse 14 and following. As appointed governor of Judea, King Artaxerxes had authorized Nehemiah, as well as all other, the governors of the provinces, to maintain themselves, how? From taxation and tribute obtained from the people that they rule. That's usually the way it works. Nehemiah called this the food allotted to the governor, verse 14. The food allotted to the governor, and I'm the governor. That's the implication. Verse 15 tells us that the former governors wasted no time implementing this policy. It reads, they placed a heavy burden on the people, took 40 shekels of silver, that's about one pound of silver, probably on a monthly basis, though I don't know. They took that from them in addition to food and wine, and we read their assistance also lorded it over the people. Wow. Bleed the people dry. That was the policy of the pagan governors who ruled in Judea before the arrival of Nehemiah. They had no heart of compassion for those struggling to make ends meet. They had no compassion for those whose poverty had reduced them and their income to the bare necessities of life and Now, under Nehemiah, in a later day which was experiencing a famine in the land, verse three, the Jewish nobles and Jewish now nobles and officials were conducting themselves towards their brethren in a similar fashion. They were acting like pagans instead of like the children of God. But not Nehemiah. His practice during the hard economic times his people were experiencing was this, verse 15 and 16. He says, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. Okay. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. What's he saying? He's saying, I didn't come here to fleece the sheep. I didn't come here to kick a person when they're down. I set the example of a governor who leads by example. My hands were on that wall building alongside of you. My servants were not busy picking roses and planting vineyards on the royal estate. There is no royal estate. We didn't buy property, and we didn't amass great land holdings while the people were wondering where their next meal was coming from. My assistants, unlike the former governor's, did not lord it over you, but were with you and with me, working on the wall. Now this is not a boast on Nehemiah's part, but it is the plain truth of how he conducted himself as a godly leader, and more so as one who was a fellow Israelite. How then, could these lesser leaders, these nobles and officials, have done what they did in opposing their own brethren and oppressing them through excessive interests, snatching up the mortgages of their farms, taking their children as collateral, as indentured servants? Wow. You know, if you're going to be a child of God, you've got to act like a child of It's not always easy and sometimes it requires personal sacrifice and devotion. Look at verse 17 and following. He says, furthermore, 150 Jews and officials, doesn't say how many officials, ate at my table as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. I'm thinking here of the dignitaries, the vendors, the visitors from other countries. The cost, Nehemiah, was huge. It cost him some big bucks out of his own pocket. Look at verse 18. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep. Choice sheep, that's the best. Some poultry. And it was consumed by this large extended guest list. This is daily. Every ten days, the wine cellar had to be restocked. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. What would that be? Well, that would be the taxation and the tribute. But he's saying he didn't take that because the demands were heavy on the people. He is admitting that people had it rough enough just trying to feed their families. <laughs> They didn't need to feed the governor's family as well and all of his guests, though by right Nehemiah was entitled to their support. And I think here Nehemiah's integrity shines through. What was his reason by the reason of his position as governor? What he was required to do, or let's let's change the word, what he was allowed to do, tax, 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 take, 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 he relinquished all that. But I think he did more. Not only did he not take what was his by rights, he gave to the people, some 150 plus, freely as his guests. And no doubt some of the officials eating freely at his table, were of those who abused the people under their charge through usury, heavy interests, and heavy-handed tactics. The difference in attitude and behavior was like night and day. Now, my question is, what prompted Nehemiah To do as he did. Or ask the question a different way. What was his motivation? How could he bring himself. Not only to refuse to bleed the people dry. But to actually become their benefactor and their friend. Look at verse 15. Out of reverence for God I did not act like the governors before me. There it is. Out of reverence for God. I think that's a humbling acknowledgement. If we're going to claim to be children of God, then our conduct must demonstrate those godlike qualities of kindness and graciousness and forbearance and comfort which all God's hurting people receive from Him. It's ludicrous to treat the people of God, of whom we claim to be a part, with a wolf-like mentality. What about wolves? Well, wolves ravage the sheep. John 10 talks about that. They come in snapping, snarling, devouring, gorging themselves on the lives of their victims. It's particularly a temptation to those who have some authority over others, as here with Nehemiah. This is why Peter warned elders, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseer. Overseer is the statement of authority. An overseer is a ruler, one who has power to act. So he says that. Serving as overseers, you do have power, but he goes on, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, not a taker, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, verse 1 and following. Well, let me tell you, this was Nehemiah. It was. An example in his leadership to those nobles and officials under him who in turn had people under them. The Christian brand of leadership follows the pattern of Jesus, which was to humble himself and to become the servant of his disciples. And not just in that foot-washing example of John 13, but in the loving care that he gave to them all the years of his ministry. Bearing up with their little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. He said that to them a number of times. Correcting their erroneous conclusions. Chiding them for their petty jealousy and infighting. And if that were not enough, finally going to the cross for their sins. Jesus took the brunt of the Jewish opposition and protected his disciples from arrest and trial the very night of his incarceration. In all of his life and even in his death, he was a giver, a giver, a giver, not a taker, a helper, not one who injured them, a comforter in their time of distress, not an abuser of their hurting situations. Sadly, there are charlatans in our day who will speak in the name of Jesus. They're really doing the work of the devil. Unlike Nehemiah, they have no reverence for God. Consequently, they do not care one iota for the sheep under their charge. Jesus speaks of such leaders as thieves and robbers, John 10, verse 8. Hired hands, he says, who care nothing for the sheep. John 10, verse 13, and he goes on to say, and are therefore in the ministry for the money. Well, let me tell you, Nehemiah cared. The Jewish nobles and officials did not care. <laughs> I, hope I, I hope I'm a Nehemiah, not a hired hand. All who are unlike Nehemiah and do not serve the people out of reverence for God are not the children of God. Or if they are the children of God, they are sinning greatly and they need to come to repentance by getting their priorities straight. Every once in a while we read something in the newspaper about some big religious figure that fleeced the sheep living in his mansion somewhere. You ask the question, well, what happens to the Nehemiahs who live their lives for others and especially to those who have a sacrificial spirit towards helping those in need? What happens to them? Let me tell you that Nehemiah's hope was in God. Look at verse 19. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. When all is said and done, Nehemiah does not look to his countrymen to meet his needs. He looks to God, who alone has witnessed the labors of his hands and has been able to read the motives of his heart. He could say, Lord, you know me. You know me. You know why I said this, why I did that, why I went over there. Why accomplish that? You know me. Some powerful lessons here. Number one the exercise of one's rights is not the first order of business for Christian servants, it's the relinquishing of rights. So Nehemiah had the right to do, as the other governors had done, the right to tax the people, to demand food and wine from them, to feed his household, to pay his bills, he relinquished those rights and he became their servant, not their Lord. Paul could honestly tell the church of Corinth, don't we have, here's, this, here's him speaking, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? If others have this right of support from you, Corinthians, shouldn't we have it all the more And he says that because he was the one that brought the gospel to their town. Shouldn't we have the right all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel but I have not used any of these rights. Yet when I preach the gospel I cannot boast. If I preach voluntarily I have a reward. And though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. First Corinthians nine, verse four and following. What is he saying? Well it's Paul is saying he did not stand on his rights when it came to the financial support due him from the Corinthian church to whom he ministered. Instead, he became their servant, sacrificing for their spiritual well-being. And just in case they might accuse him of only preaching for money, he determined, I'm not taking any of your money. In other churches, he did take their money. The Macedonian churches, you remember, who were poor, they sent quite a nice gift to him a number of times. He says, he talks about that. But from the Corinthians, uh uh-uh. uh, he's not taking any of their money. Why? Because they had a bad attitude uh, towards this whole idea of supporting their pastor. Secondly, the best service cannot come from doing the minimum but from going the extra mile. I look at Nehemiah again. Nehemiah did not just abstain from demanding his rights which was good. That in itself was a service that he rendered to the hurting people of Jerusalem. These families could concentrate on feeding themselves and not paying the governor's tax. He was the governor Nehemiah's extra mile was that he became the people's benefactor, setting a feast for them day in and day out at his own expense. A number of scholars have calculated from our texts that the food listed here was sufficient to feed between 600 and 800 people a day One meal a day, including the 150 Jewish officials. So it may very well have been the poorest of the poor, which Nehemiah invited to his table along with the officials. We don't know. So it's not just in doing the bare minimum for others that we demonstrate our discipleship to Christ, but as Jesus taught... If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile go with him two miles. Give to one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 5 verse 40 and following. That, that's Nehemiah. By God's grace I hope it's us as well. To live this way will mean the death blow will have to be leveled against the selfishness of our hearts. But because we are selfish, this won't be very easy. But easier or not, however, it is the mark of being a follower of Christ. A giver, a giver, a giver. And as a final lesson this morning, consider Nehemiah's prayer, verse 19. Remember me with favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. That's an interesting prayer. He does not say, for all that he has said to the people. That's saying Is not the mark of his service. Doing. Is the mark of service. James the half brother of Jesus. Addressed this issue when he wrote. Suppose a brother or sister. Is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him. Go. I wish you well, keep warm, keep well fed. But he does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, writes James, is dead. James 2, verse 15 and 5. Notice here that the area of service needed most in this example is not spiritual. It's physical. This brother and sister in need does not have clothes to wear. Doesn't have daily food. Now we could extrapolate that out. Doesn't have the money to pay the heat bill hasn't had a new set of clothes in months can't fix the leaking roof you could you see what i'm saying the brother is in need not of spiritual lessons doesn't need a sermon he needs a sandwich not a benediction go in peace the Lord bless you no he needs a shirt and a pair of trousers or a skirt and a blouse we like Nehemiah all want to be looked on in favor by the Lord I don't think we can bear his frown or disapproval or his rejection we don't want that. But the reward of the Lord is for service rendered, not good intentions and not good words. Paul wrote it this way We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done with the body, whether good or bad. It's your deeds, brethren, your deeds. Your deeds, not your words. These are the basis of receiving God's favor. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus taught, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of God. What we're looking for, what we should be looking for, is Jesus' commendation Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. What not what have you said, what have you taught, what have you done for the Lord Jesus Christ? So I don't know what to do. Well Part of that is going to require you open your eyes. Keep your ears open. See, hear, look for needs that people are experiencing. Sometimes they just give an innuendo and you have to pick up on it. And become active in being a doer of the word, not just a talker. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that uh, you are always a doer. Oh yes, you have taught us many wonderful things, the principles by which to live, and we need those principles, and they form the groundwork, they form the foundation upon which we stand, but at the same time, there comes a day when we must stand. We can't just say... Say, say, say. Talk, talk, talk. you got to get around to doing your will. And we're not, or should not be, ignorant of what your will is. It's found in your word of God. We have eyes to see and ears to hear, if we will. And then... As experience comes our way, the word of God tells us how to react to that experience in a godly, God-honoring way. I think, Lord, too many times we're looking in the mirror. We're looking at how we look. We're looking at how we're doing. And we forget the Christian community. Help us to have wider vision, we pray. To be more like Jesus, we pray. For his glory and our good. Amen. From the Brown Hymnal number 438 is our closing hymn 438. Let's see. serving the lord and i hope we get our air back it's been rather oppressive here no church tonight i've already announced that but i'm just reminding you of that and you can pray about air conditioners you know you can when equipment breaks down you can pray about those things and um i know our furnaces are old they're like i said over 25 years old i'm pretty sure and that means the ac in them is pretty old too so uh the lord bless you Have a good afternoon.